You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Wow. I think I can go home now. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me right now, but no. Well, good morning. It's great to see you today. Again, I just, I, I, I have to say again, thank you. Your kindness is, is it's overwhelming to my family. And um, it's just amazing. And we have felt so at home. And we already feel so loved. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just blown away. Thank you so much for uh, who you are, for what you do, and, and for how you've helped myself and my family just transition to this community. I'm so excited about what God's going to do. And uh, thank you so much again. So we're talking kingdom, all right? Uh, as you saw in the video, as we talked about last week, I started to throw around this word kingdom. And maybe some of you are like, who is this guy? That just seems like a so far, uh, it's an outdated word, it seems like. It seems like it's uh, not relevant. Why are you standing up there talking about kingdom? And yet I would tell you today that there's, there is no more relevant thing to talk about in this world than the world kingdom. It's what Jesus, when he started his ministry, couldn't stop talking about. He just cut. He shows up, starts doing ministry, and what he keeps talking about is this idea of a kingdom coming to earth, the kingdom of God. And then he would go on to say, listen, I am bringing the kingdom. In fact, I am the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in you. Uh, Over and over and over. And so in a first things to do, I just think the kingdom is what we should be talking about first and always. And the kingdom is this idea of a mindset, a lifestyle, a culture that becomes a part of who we are. It's our primary identity, right? Uh, Have you ever had your parents, like, before you went into somewhere to to a setting, maybe it was a, a social setting with a family, or not family, but uh, a, f- a funeral home or different setting, and um, your parents look back at you in the car and say, hey, remember who you are. Remember your last name. Do we not do that anymore? Yeah. I definitely did. My parents were like, hey, remember, you're a bullock. And I knew that meant I was supposed to, like, you know, like, uphold or live to a certain, it was part of my identity, right? We have all sorts of labels we have as our identity, your last name, your family, where you're from, your high school, your, uh, your, our country, we're Americans, right? All these things. And what Jesus is proposing to us as he begins his ministry, as we understand what he was all about, is that our primary identity is that of a kingdom citizen of heaven. In the middle of all these other things we live in and among, that our primary identity is I am a part of the kingdom of heaven. So often, like what the kingdom has meant or what the gospel has meant to so many is Jesus came to earth, he died on a cross, he provided for our salvation, we can have forgiveness from sin, and we can get our ticket punched to go to heaven. And so I'm going to pray the prayer, I'm going to trust in him, and then I'm going to like just 
just trust that when I die, it's all gonna work out, right? And like so many people have, have said a prayer and they've thought, well, I'm in and no, 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 that part's taken care of. Thank you, God, for taking care of that part. And they've caught that the reality is that Jesus came to dynamically change who you are and through you, this world. He is in a restoring process. This world is going to be changed. It's, lo it's lost, it's broken, it's fallen. And yet in Jesus coming, he has begun the work of making all things new. And that begins with you and your life and the king coming into your heart and beginning to renovate and restore who you are and changing the brokenness, the fallenness, the sinfulness and reworking that and transforming our lives. And we, became, we become that first taste of the kingdom in this world. And as we're changed and renewed, people around are like, whoa, what's going on? That person just seems to live with such a sense of peace and purpose and direction and blessing, I'm interested, and all of a sudden, we become the kingdom in this community and to this world. That's what's happening. And that's what Jesus brings in. And that's what this place for 80 plus years has tried to do and has been a part of. And as we start another chapter in this story of Lima community, it's only appropriate to begin talking about the kingdom. That's who we are, that's what we do. That is our primary and principal identity. I would just stop for a minute and say, do you see yourself this morning as a kingdom citizen? Is that your primary identity? Not your last name, not where you came from, not what fan base you're a part of, right? Hey, I loved it last night. As an Iowa fan, there's nothing better than seeing the, the Badgers absolutely shellacked. You know how you feel about Michigan? Sorry, Michigan fans. You know how you feel about Ohio State? That's how I feel about Wisconsin. I mean, come, in, come on, any team that has sin in its name Right? What's your identity? Jesus calls us. Listen to his words in his transforming message of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, seek first. First, primary. Your life should be marked and characterized by your pursuit of this thing above everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things in your life take their proper shape and place. In fact, as we've thought about uh, this sermon series and named it, We've taken what Jesus instructed us to pray. At the beginning of that prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We begin prayer by understanding God's character, his nature, and then he tells us, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. That's what we're to pray. This is who we are. This becomes our mindset, then our lifestyle, and it becomes a part of the culture that we are trying to be a part of around us and shape and form and expand. It's the kingdom. So really, the premise of this entire series is this, to present a clear picture of kingdom life 
and to make a compelling invitation to live in that culture. Am I, am I weird? If I am, that's all right. I'm the crazy guy who keeps talking about the kingdom. But this is the way I like to approach things. And again, I, I shared first service. I, I really, I really, I don't know the nuances of Doug's style and what you're used to. And so it's a new guy, a new style, and it might take a little bit of time to, to acclimate, but oh, I approach these series as a way for six weeks or eight weeks or however long we preach through a, a book or a, a topic, an expositional topic, that our idea is to simply wear out the word of God so that you and I become shaped biblically and we think think how the scriptures call us to think. We understand, and as we visit it and we saturate in it, as we wear it out, my hope is that after six weeks, you can say in your own life, you know what? I understand the kingdom a little bit better. That's the point, and that's what I'm trying to do. And so as we walk through this, this is what I'm trying to do is is introduce these ideas of the kingdom. Last week we talked about the kingdom is realized through unity. The kingdom will stall and falter when we don't understand that the whole purpose of the kingdom is together to follow the king, to make that our primary pursuit and to understand as together as we follow the king, like there's powerful things that happen in our life and through our community. When we're together, I pray that they may be one. I'm sorry, guys, I feel like I'm spitting today. You can move back if you need to. We'll bring you shields next week. But. So it's this, it's this. The kingdom is realized through unity. It's built on the love of the Father. It's lived through the life-giving word. It thrives in connection with one another. It acts out the mission of the king. The kingdom provides purpose through its various roles. And so these six weeks, we're gonna think about all of these things, how it's built, where it lives through, how it thrives, what it acts like, and how it, it gives us purpose as we understand the, the kingdom. And so today, I want us to consider the idea that the kingdom is built on the love of the Father. I would say this, to begin to understand the kingdom is to understand this story that Jesus shared. Now, I would remind you that the Bible is a Middle Eastern book, and often when we read it, and so often I've heard as a pastor, like, man, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It uses phrases and things. And, and I get that. We have to put ourselves back in oftentimes to a first century or an ancient thinking. Often when we read the scriptures, we miss the unconscious, unconscious sensibilities of that time and that culture, the insights that are cultural, the attitudes that would have been a part of everybody's life. And, and they didn't, it didn't need an explanation for them, but for sometimes it does for us. 
And I think this story that every one of you have probably heard as I walk through it today, so often we have read through, we have read through it in a 21st century lens and we've missed the absolute startling impact of what Jesus was sharing to them and to us about what is God about, who is God, how does he feel about us, and how does he act toward us. And so... This story in Luke chapter 15 that we're gonna look at, if you have your scriptures, I invite you to turn to there or you can look on the screen, but it, the context of the story is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now in the final months of his life and, and he's, he's speaking to all a plethora of people, right? Sinners and verse one says he was talking to tax collectors, Romans. Uh, uh, he was talking also to religious leaders, in fact, in verse seven of chapter 15, he says that one of the things I'm trying to get across is the religious people of that time have misunderstood God himself. They say they're about God, that they're for God, but they've lost sight of what God's about, what moves his heart, what is his primary goal with mankind. In fact, we read these words as he looked at the religious leaders, he says, I wanna tell you that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. They were consumed by their righteous lives and they've lost sight of the fact that God was a God who cared about reaching everyone. And so he shares some stories about the heart of God, a God who seeks, a God who seeks, like the, the story of a lost coin, the story of lost sheep. And we see in those stories, God is characterized as a seeking God who rejoices when he finds lost things. But then we come to this story in verse 11. I think it was Charles Dickens uh, and Ralph Waldo Emerson who both said, and they were renowned authors themselves, said this is the greatest story that's ever been told in these 20-something verses. He shares this story that, that shows us a picture of God himself and also a side of us we become characters in the story. And so Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Again, remember that we are talking about the fact that the kingdom is built on the love of the Father. And this is shown to us in the story that Jesus shared. Jesus continued after he's told stories about lost coins, lost sheep. He continues in this way. There was a man who had two sons. This story is written about three characters, a younger son, a father, and an older son. For a number of verses, we think about the younger son, or what we have always in our culture called the prodigal son. How many of you can relate to the prodigal son? This is the story of the prodigal son, right? We know that. This is really a story about a man with two sons. 
that Jesus actually tells a story that's bigger than just the prodigal. He tells about the older son also. But really, the point of the whole story is to primarily help us understand the character of the father. Who is the father? How does he act? And this is actually the way Jesus is helping them and us to understand how God himself feels and acts toward us. And so he tells this story, a man with two sons. And the younger son approaches the father and says to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. For us, okay, that doesn't sound cool. That sounds a little selfish, but okay, kid wants to get some inheritance and get rolling. First century culture, this was about the most shameful thing that could have been done. You see, in that culture, that was built on generation after generation of family businesses, family farms, family occupations, where you lived and worked and earned, not just for your own living, but to pass it on. There was a strong family uh, context in the Jewish culture. And this son is basically going to his dad and saying, listen, I want to, I want to jump out of that tradition all the sweat and the blood and the tears that have been poured and shed before me, I wanna do something different. It's a younger son, right? Um, and in that culture, uh, honestly, there was a, uh, a prejudice toward older kids. How many of you are older kids in the room? Nice, that's me. I would have had it made back then. Because a son come to a father and, and ask for an inheritance, he would have understood that older brother is gonna get two thirds and I'm gonna get a third. But that was still very significant in that day. From the manner, the way the story is told, we understand that this man is wealthy. He has servants, hired hands. He has all sorts of livestock. This is a considerable ask. But honestly, it is an absolutely shameless, disrespectful request. It's obvious this son has a huge lack of love for his father. There's not an ounce of gratitude in his heart for the legacy of the generations of the family that have been passed on to him, or to his father, and then one day to him. This is much bigger than just an ask for an allowance money or a loan. In fact, the son has made a decision. I wanna take what is coming to me, I wanna take it early, and I wanna do whatever I want to do with it. And in essence, in that culture, he's basically looking at his father and saying, Dad, I just kind of wish you had already passed on so I can take what's mine and do what I want. Right? Give me my share of the estate. Jesus is a 
phenomenal storyteller because he uses words that, it's this word that's not normally used for inheritance. Inheritance would mean, okay, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna pass on to you what I have earned, what I have, and the word that's normally used that, and you're going to take care of it. Not only do you get it, but you're gonna take responsibility for it. You're gonna make it go farther and continue the legacy. But Jesus on purpose uses a different word that simply means the the kid showed up to dad and said, dad, I just want you to give me a third of the material possessions. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the legacy. I don't want any of that. I just want you to give me the goods because I want to sell it and do what I want to do. Shameless. Absolutely, in a culture where honor your father and mother had, was central, and in fact, the father had become the central part of the whole culture, this is shameless, outrageous. In fact, there's no way that Jesus could portray greater shame upon a person than this act. But honestly, As Jesus shares this story about a son, he's actually sharing the story of us. Because the scriptures say about us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that in this outrageous, shameless act of the younger son toward the father, it's actually a picture of you and me in our fallen sinful condition when we begin to pursue our own way and our own thing. That's us. And in our rebellion to God and his goodness and his, his, his purposes and his plans and his gifts, his resources that he wants to bestow on us, we all have turned and said, no, no thank you. Just give me the things and let me do my own thing. Now, the story in that day should have went like this. The son goes in, asks for that, dad slaps him real good and kicks him out of the family. That's what the culture would have said to do. You ingrate, you're done. I can't believe you would go to this length. But Jesus gives us a twist, a surprise. God the Father isn't like us. And God the Father in this story divides his property between them. In this shameless act of rebellion and uh, ingratitude, the father, instead of shaming and kicking out, gives him what he asked for. Again, a picture of us. God, in his gracious nature, gives us the freedom. He gives us freedom to act. The story would continue this way. Not long after that, after the father does this surprising thing and gives his son what he asked for and is shamed in the community and is ridiculed for his, uh, for his weakness and for his uh, compassion, not long after that, the younger son gets together everything that has been given to him 
and he sets off for a distant country. Now, again, the way the words are is the son took all these material things and he sold them off cheap and easy and fast. Again, this is me. This is you. Our lives given creation and life and breath and a good and gracious God who only wants the best for us and and wants us to be his children. All of us have sold off that cheap, easy, and fast for our own way, our own pursuits, our own desires. It says that he sells it off and he, he sets off for a distant country. Again, remember the context, Jewish kid, I mean, they thought they were it, right? I mean, they were the privileged people. Why would someone leave the Jewish country to go to the heathen land? This is scandalous, terrible, shameful. He doesn't want to stick around on any of it. And he ends up going off to a distant country And there he squanders, scatters is the word. He wastes his income and his living on what uh, wild living, Uh, all sorts of things. The party lifestyle is what he did. Think about all of the things that the father and, and then the grandfather and then the father before that and the families for generations had worked hard to earn and make and provide. He takes it cheap and easy and squanders it. The, the, the older brother tells us that one thing he did is he said, dad, this guy's the guy who went off and, and wasted his wealth on harlots, right? Just wild party lifestyle. What a shame. What a shameful thing to do. And yet, again, this is us. We sell cheap all the gifts God has given us. We read that as he's living the party lifestyle, he spends it all. He runs out. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. Again, this is the way our world works. He spends everything, that's his fault. A severe famine occurs in the country. That's not his fault, but that's the way life is. A fallen world always shows no mercy, even in the light of our bad decisions. Can you follow with me today? Have you been there? Have you lived there? Yeah, that's been me. Like, I've wasted it. I found myself empty and lost and broken. And guess what the world wasn't doing for me? fixing it. In fact, the pressure kept on, and this is where this kid ends up. In a far land with nothing, and now hungry and in need. He has nothing, he has nowhere to go, and we read this. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. (laughs) That's a nice paraphrase. The actual word is he glues himself to this guy. 
Actually, what he did is he found somebody who had a farm and could give him a job, and he just kept asking until the guy finally relented. He like kept showing up saying, I need to work, I need to work. And the guy at first was like, no, nah, I don't need work, I don't need help. And the guy was relentless. He glues himself to this guy until it's so annoying that the guy finally says, fine, just feed my pigs. And you know, as he's telling the story in the first century, there's an audible gasp. <clears throat> because not only has the Jewish boy left the Jewish land, the Jewish now, the Jewish boy has wasted all of the inheritance. Now the Jewish boy is feeding the very things that they would not touch or eat. Pigs, unclean. I mean, this story is just unraveling in such a horrible way. It's such a picture of us. And not only do we see that he is feeding pigs, He's so hungry and not getting enough that he actually begins to not only feed the pigs, he begins to eat alongside the pigs. You get the story? And this is actually Jesus helping us understand. It's not just the prodigal son. This is our story, every one of us. We read that he finally, in the middle of this horrible situation, he comes to his senses. He remembers. What does he remember? How good and gracious and kind the Father is. He remembers that, man, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? They've got it great. I mean, they live way better than I do because the Father is so gracious and kind and loving and benevolent. And here I am starving to death. Surely a man who is that kind will allow me to come back and at least do this. He said, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you in the way this is. I've sinned and my sins are so great that they stack all the way up into heaven. I have totally blown it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He responds in the way that we, we seem to always respond so often. I've made a mess. I've messed it up. I'm broken, lost, empty. I'm at the bottom of the barrel, right? So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna try a little harder. I'm gonna make some better decisions. I'm gonna go back to the Father and say, hey, I'll just work my way back into a job for you. That's gotta be better than what I'm doing. But it's the whole idea that the son thought that to come back to the Father, he needed to, to clean it up, to fix it up, right? That's us, that's our world. Look around, self-help, religion everywhere. It's all about knowing, hey, we're lost, we're broken, something's not right, uh, we gotta fix this, and so we're gonna do all of our things to try to make ourselves better, more moral, more whatever, to maybe appease God. And so he sets off to do that, right? And he went and he goes to his father. By this time in the story, the, the religious leaders are finally shaking their head. Yeah, 
This story went off the rails a little bit, but now it's coming back to the way it should be. He's going to get his comeuppance. He's going to have to crawl back. Dad's going to make him work it off. And he's going to, right? And we're going to show everybody how this really is. Then what does Jesus do? We read that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. You see, God is always looking for lost children. You've probably heard this told so many times, haven't you? I've heard it. God was on, or the father was on his front porch, and I don't know what it was, but it's obvious that the heart of this father longed to see that lost child come home. Instead of, well, he's getting what he deserves. I've heard it's pretty bad out there. Have you heard from, like, yeah, he's, he's made a mess of it, and he's struggling, well, that's what you get. No. He's looking always for his lost child. It said his heart was filled with compassion. This is such a powerful word. I don't have time to break it down. But he's so filled with compassion. This is the heart of God. And this is the heart of the kingdom. And this is what the kingdom is built on. Kingdoms are always built on control and economics and military and all this stuff. And even here, this nation has been characterized by one word, and that's freedom, right? And I'm thankful for that. But I will tell you that the kingdom that is the greatest kingdom is built on one word, and that's love. The father has compassion, and in his compassion, he runs to his son. And now everybody's like, all right, this this is crazy. Men of his stature don't ever run. It's undignified. It's beneath them. Plus, in that day with robes, you'd have had to lift your robe up. Might have shown a little bit of ankle. That was really undignified back then. And yet the word Jesus uses, it's the word from from racing, from athletics. It's he sprints. Totally undignified. And now the father's being shameless. In fact, I think the story is written in a way that Jesus, and again, go with me here, but there's a lot of people who think this is true. That the father sprints not only because he has compassion and he wants to be reconnected to the son, but he knows the son's gonna have to walk through the village to get to the house. And he knows that when he walks through the village, he's gonna be scorned and laughed at and mocked, and the father wants to spare him the shame. That's what the kingdom's built on, is this king, this God, this love. He runs, he throws his arms around him, he kisses him, and it's the word of repeated kissing, of kissing every, like just, you know, like your grandma. (laughs) My mom's side of the family, every time we left grandma's house, it was like five rounds. Get to the door, a bunch of kisses. Get on the porch, a bunch of kisses. Get to the car door, but yeah, 
Some of you are like, man, that is weird. I don't know. I don't know any different. But that's, that's the father. And catch this. Does the story read? Uh, the son goes, father, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the story should have read in that time. And the father said, you're right. Go grab a, go grab a place in the bunkhouse. You're the low man on the totem pole. You have to prove to me. You have to spare me all the condemnation from the village, the shame. I'm going to show you how this works, boy. You're going to have to work it off. No. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. (laughs) They would have all known what that meant. Man, the robe is like, it's like a, 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 it's significant in who he was. The father always wore the robe. It was like, this is the important person in the room. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was that, 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 that picture of authority. It stamped with your ring. It gave the authority like, hey, this is who I am. This is where I come from. This is what I'm about. Put sandals on his feet. Servants and hired people didn't wear sandals in that day. That was only reserved for family, for sons. How does Jesus, how does the father respond? <laughs> not work it off. Not get what you deserve. Not you're gonna have to wallow in some shame. He's only concerned about one thing. The the son has returned home and I am going to restore him fully and completely regardless of the rebellion. (laughs) Bring the fatted calf and kill it. I was studying this out like, well, never mind. Some of you like veal, I don't know. This was veal, man. This was the good stuff. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. You see, the foundation of the kingdom is love. The ethic of the kingdom is love. This is not a celebration of the son, it's a celebration of the father. This feast honors the father. It honors the father for what he's done. The one who gives life. It's the one, the father who restores by merciful forgiveness and gracious love. This father has exhibited unheard of kindness, goodness, sacrificial love and grace. But this is what the kingdom is built on. Because for us, the father showed his love. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the kingdom. This is what it's built on. It's the love of the father. And the goal of that love is one thing. It's reconciliation. That's what the kingdom's always about. Always about. 
That's what we're built on. We all have been reconciled to God ourselves and we desperately want to see other people reconciled to him. (laughs) That's why Paul says this, for God's love, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Our whole mindset has been changed that the God who has rescued us wants to rescue the world. And that's what we want to build this whole kingdom upon is the love of the Father. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Father, I pray today, help us to live in this kingdom that's built on the love of the Father. Maybe somebody today just needed to be reminded that this is who God is. He loves us. He's not a God with arms outstretched. He's a God God who runs with arms wide open. Help us to understand that this is the ethic. This is the culture of the kingdom. This is what it's built on, is the love of the father for his children, but also beyond his children for lost people. This is what our kingdom's about, seeing the world reconciled back to God. Help us to see that. Help us to think about this through our week, to see that this is what God has done for us and what he wants to do, and help us to be about that, built on this firm foundation of the love of the Father. I pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Go out this week. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.